From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSB Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 36. This is going to be a fun show uh, for a lot of the physical therapists, rehabilitation specialists out there, as well as any athletes that's really dealt with an elbow injury. We're going to dig in really deep on a complex topic. We're going to nerd out a little bit with one of the brightest minds in sports medicine in the baseball world today, someone who's at the forefront as a Major League Baseball team physician who sees not only professional baseball players, but sees young kids um, who are getting hurt. We speak a little bit, not just to the biomechanics of the elbow and the anatomy of the elbow, um, but we also talk a lot about the factors that influence uh, injury for a lot of those younger kids. So we're in for a real treat today. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives, or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest received his undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering while playing four years of Division I soccer at nationally ranked Columbia University. He went on to New York University School of Medicine and thereafter completed his orthopedic surgery residency at Columbia and then went on to complete a fellowship in sports medicine at the Curlin Job Orthopedic Clinic, which included physician team coverage for many professional teams and college teams. He's a professor of clinical orthopedic surgery at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and an attending orthopedic surgeon at the New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center. He also serves as head team physician for the New York Yankees and the Rockland Boulders. He's president-elect for the Major League Baseball Team Physicians Association and a member of MLB's Pitch Smart program. Outside of baseball, our guest serves as the head team physician for the New York City Football Club and the head team physician for many local high schools and a consultant to metropolitan soccer clubs, gymnastics events, and swim teams. 
He's authored multiple books, plus more than 200 articles and 50 book chapters related to knee, shoulder, elbow, and sports medicine, and has given more than 300 lectures nationally and internationally. Through his role as Chief of Sports Medicine and as the Director of Biomechanics Research at the Center for Orthopedics Research, he conducts research in the area of throwing-related injury prevention and treatment, ACL injury prevention and screening, biomechanics of the elbow, and surgical techniques for rotator cuff repair and shoulder instability. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Chris Ahmad. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Ahmad. We're really excited to have you. Hey, it's a great pleasure to be with you today, Eric. This is going to be um, selfishly very educational, um, but just as importantly, we have a, a great audience of folks from, you know, kind of the, the lay population, the players, the coaches, the parents, but also I know we have a really strong contingent from the medical profession. So hopefully we can, we can check some boxes for absolutely, you know, everybody, you know, in those segments. Um, and I want to dig in on, you know, really the complexity of the elbow joint. I always, I always joke with our, our interns and some of the, the folks that I, I speak to at seminars that it's, it's kind of the most claustrophobic joint in the body. You have a lot of stuff in a really small area um, that's, that's asked to do some pretty crazy things when we're dealing with, with throwing world. So, you know, elbows are your most injured body segment in the throwing population, but they're also the most frequently diagnosed. Why do you think this is the case? What makes the, the anatomy and the function of the elbow so complex, particularly in overhead population? Well, the elbow, as, as you've been pointing out, is so unique. It is not designed for what it was intended to do with throwing a baseball upwards of 100 miles an hour. The powerful leg muscles have been well designed to generate power. All of the force through the lower half of the body that then gets converted and regulated through the elbow is what puts it at this extreme risk for injury. And so the complexity is interesting. It's a hinge joint. It has a geometry of bones that is different than any other joint. It has muscles that have to attach on very small areas. And as we've come to understand through the epidemic of UCL injury, this tiny small little ligament that hangs out on the inside of the elbow in this complex machine of the elbow is at a lot of risk because of all the force that it sees in such a repetitive fashion. And from a, a surgeon standpoint, where I've dissected elbows both on patients to reconstruct ligaments, but also and as a researcher looking at this ligament closely, some of the details of this ligament, despite knowing that it was injured and reconstructed by Dr. Job in 1974, is still being greatly appreciated with every research study that we do. And that is, it has complex anatomy. And it's also extremely fragile. And one of the things that I, I think I've maybe noticed uh, subclinically, and I'm, I'm curious to get your take on the, the clinical end of the spectrum, is certainly there are, there are many, many frequent misdiagnoses in this world of, of elbow diagnosis. And um, why do you think that is? Do you think it's that there are not a lot of surgeons that really that really specialize in the elbow and that, you know, we get a lot of maybe shoulders and knee doctors who who dabble in the elbow on the side and maybe they don't appreciate the, the clinical complexities of it? Or is it just that this is such a, you know, a funky, you know, diagnostic puzzle that that anybody would be stumbled, stumbled on when they go through it? Well, as athletes who who grow up playing multiple sports, we know that there's some soreness that happens generally with any sport. If you play soccer and get kicked in the shin, you get sore. It's okay to continue playing. 
And if you're a football player working out at the gym and you just did bench press, your chest is going to be sore the next day. What's different about the baseball player, though, is that soreness on the inside part of the elbow where the ligament lives, that is not normal, especially in a growing, developing athlete. And so the the sense of it's okay to be sore and you can throw through it, or even worse, if you're hurting and you can throw through it, that is, uh, that's a problem. And when a ligament gets injured, sometimes we think of it's either injured or not injured. Sometimes the ligament's undergoing small damaging moments that in accumulation add up to a problem, sometimes even later on in life. So I think for the reasons we were discussing, having elbow pain on the inside part of your elbow, that's not normal for kids. And that should be looked at more closely and not as a natural part of developing as a hard thrower, as a pitcher. That's great feedback. And one of the things that, so I, I worked my way through baseball sports medicine, which was uh, a, a phenomenal text. Um, it was kind of a, a, a collection of industry superstars. You had, um, you know, Dr. Romeo was your, was your co-author, but there were great chapters from a collection of different sports medicine professionals. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is you, you alluded to, you know, specific diagnostic and, and surgical criterion that you, you deal with, with the elbow. And one of the things you mentioned was that, you know, when we're looking to, to visualize osteophytes at the posterior lecranon, that you want to, you know, look at 140 degrees of external rotation on the radiograph. You, you even talked about, you know, removing asymptomatic spurs might actually be the worst thing that you can do for an elbow where you you may suspect an, an unstable or an insufficient UCL. Where are the biggest mistakes that you maybe see, um, you know, from a, a second opinion standpoint? What are the mistakes surgically that are made or diagnostically that are frequently overlooked? Well, the, uh, I'm glad you asked that question. I studied engineering in college and my background in mechanical engineering was working in labs and pulling materials apart and seeing how they fell. So when I was uh, actually studying as an undergraduate student ligament failure, working my way into the field of baseball sports medicine, I was fascinated with this ligament and understanding the diagnosis. The first thing that's interesting to me is when a ligament diagnosis injury is made, everybody wants to know what percent of the ligament is torn. Is it a partial tear? Is it a full tear? And I always have to take a step back because these injuries are not so binary. Sometimes there's chronic features to the ligament where it's been damaged over a period of time. It becomes thick and weak and maybe even has calcifications in it. That ligament only needs a little extra damage on it before it becomes symptomatic and incompetent. On the other hand, you could have a very healthy ligament and then a thrower is throwing hard through maybe at the end of a season, fatigue, other features, and then all of a sudden they, they feel a sharp pain and a pop, and then they get an MRI scan and their ligaments exploded and they have additional injuries. But the thing that about the elbow that is uh, interesting that you brought up is that the load on the elbow is shared. It's shared by the ligament, it's shared by the bones, and it's also shared by the muscles. So we did some work in the lab, and if you have weak or fatigued muscles of the forearm, the amount of stress with valgus loading, the load that you experience at the elbow with throwing, is enormous on the ligament, 
And if you have just a little bit of flexor activity, forearm muscle activity, it completely protects the ligament. So knowing that anybody who has fatigue or even a strain of the flexor mass or the flexor muscles, they need to be protected. They need to get that healthy. And the interaction between, as you brought up, the bony architecture, which is this very congruent, complex architecture in the back of the elbow, it absorbs some of the load also. And it is theorized that if you have a incompetent ligament or a slowly failing ligament, it will increase the load on the bone and the bone reacts by creating bone spurs. If you then go take the bone spurs out, which is uh, an easy arthroscopic procedure to do, you can wind up down the road with exposing a failing ligament that just hasn't become symptomatic yet. So many of these things we studied in the lab and, and are at the point where we can say these are now proven concepts. You take too much bone out of the elbow. If somebody has a bone spur, you can wind up with a ulnar collateral ligament problem in the future. It's amazing. There are some really good training parallels. We talk a lot about not all motion being good motion, um, you know, and you're, you're effectively creating extra motion that can't be stabilized. So it's a, it's an important parallel to what we deal with on a, on a daily basis. Um, you know, you, you actually alluded to something I'm, I'm really intrigued about. Um, I know you mentioned that, you know, you often see young kids who have substantial exposures to high pitch counts or some kind of stress at a young age and they develop, you know, a low grade injury that becomes calcification on the leg ligament, which is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a, it's a, it's a weaker point on the ligament that makes it more susceptible um, to increase damage down the road. Do you think that's what we're seeing when we, we see these, you know, 18 to 24-year-old kids who all of a sudden start throwing 95, they go and they have Tommy John? Are, are you seeing when you open these kids up on the operating table that there are previous areas of, of defects in that, that ulnar collateral ligament? You're exactly right. It's my 11th year now with the Yankees. And when I first started and we would evaluate draft picks that were coming out of high school or college, their elbows look pretty normal on MRI and x-rays. Now, 2018, 2019, on x-ray and MRI, these 17-, 18-, 19-year-old young throwers, their elbows look like the 25- and 30-year-olds from a decade ago. And I think it's related to its early uh, sports specialization, but there's something about early professionalization that is also a feature. These kids are starting to get coaching and access to training strategies that used to be only available to the professional athletes. Hitters have batting cages in their house. The younger kids have pitching coaches, strength and conditioning to a level where they start to get their performance up they have precocious velocity, so they're throwing harder mid, uh, mid-90s mid at such an early age, and the ligament is just not ready to withstand that type of force, especially if it happens over a short period of time, and we're seeing that with these velocity enhancement programs. I did a very interesting study. This uh, This was something that really shocked me. In spring training, we asked all the pitchers in the Yankees organization just to recall if they got injured as a kid and needed to be shut down. And the pitchers that fell into the group of saying, yes, I shut, I shut it down when I was a kid. I had a sore elbow and compared those to the ones that said, no, my elbow has been pretty good my whole life. 
We then looked back at which ones had had Tommy John as a professional player and which ones didn't. The ones that got shut down as a kid had three times the incidence of having Tommy John as a professional athlete as a uh, as the other group that did not have to be shut down as a kid. So there's something about this wire hanger analogy. If the ligament gets injured when you're young, it has memory. It never, it may never fully recover from it. And especially as you point out, if it has weak points, calcifications, it's really challenging to get this ligament to heal so that they don't have to have that feature of fragility as they move forward in their career. There's something to be said about, about slow cooking young athletes. I, 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 I look around our pro crowd on a daily basis and I, I can't tell you how shocked I always am how many of them, you know, basically define themselves as late bloomers, you know, that they were kids who, who didn't hit 90 until they got to college or, you know, there was something that clicked for them when they were, you know, a year into pro ball and that's where their velocity came. But you're right. You're dealing with a situation where you have a very, you know, immature skeletal muscle or skeletal uh, system, immature ligament that, you know, isn't ready to handle 95 at age 16. So we we're playing with fire as an industry, no doubt about it. Um, let, let's talk about the, the various approaches to UCL reconstruction. I know, you know, obviously you, you alluded to, you know, the, the initial Tommy John back in the 70s. How, how has the surgery evolved? Where does your particular uh, approach fit in? And how do you see it maybe evolving in the years ahead? Well, Eric, I, I love talking about Tommy John surgery and, and its evolution. I also wanted to comment on that feature of slow cooking. I have this analogy I use with some of the kids in the office who want to throw hard and they want to throw often and they... Uh, aren't interested in recovery periods. And I try to use this analogy where if you take your hand and you rub it against gravel as hard as you can, if you don't stop, your hand's going to start to bleed and your skin on your palm is going to break down. But if you rub lightly and you rub frequently with breaks, you can then increase the amount of pressure and the duration of rubbing because your hand's going to get tough and you're not going to run into that situation and I think that holds true of our ligament. If we give it the right exposure to stress at the right times with the right amount of recovery, then maybe this thought that Tommy John surgery is inevitable, maybe is not as inevitable as we think. Going back to the, the surgical standpoint, you know, I had the privilege of uh, operating with Dr. Frank Job as his fellow in 2001. And he had a favorite thing that he did with his fellows. He brought us in the operating room and I was assisting him sitting on the other side of the elbow with retractors ready to go. And he takes a scalpel and he says, I've done so many of these. I think I'm going to try this one lefty. And then he <laughs> starts cutting the elbow open and dissecting left-handed. And, and you're thinking, this is one of the most confident people on the face of the planet. And as a surgeon doing this left-handed and the joke is he is left-handed. So he got <laughs> us all. Oh. The way the surgery has changed and has changed for us is we now know, and, and people who do a lot of elbow ligament reconstructions, no tear is the same and no elbow is the same. Mm -hmm. And so you need a toolbox to be prepared to manage any elbow situation to make sure that you can give that player the best chance of recovering and healing. What do I mean by that? One of the biggest reasons why a Tommy John surgery is not done well is because where the tunnels are drilled 
to pass the new tendon graft to reconstruct that ligament, if those tunnels are not in the exact precise location, if they're off by millimeters, the ligament won't function properly and it'll be under too much stress and it'll start to fail. And why would the tunnels not be in the right location? Because sometimes bone spurs and adaptive changes over time in the elbow makes the anatomy obscure or it may be altered and that throws the tunnels off. So unfortunately, we've seen uh, an immense number of failed Tommy John surgeries that have to have it redone. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's a area of analysis for us because when we look at the failures and study why they happen, one of the biggest reasons is that the tunnels are in the incorrect position. And so making sure the tunnels are exactly perfect and the sizes are perfect is probably what's the difference between somebody who's starting this uh, and learning and and at the beginning of their career as compared to somebody who's been doing it for a long time. The, uh, the principles of the original Tommy John surgery are the same, and the concept is the same, but some of the technical strategies have evolved to manage this. So we now have guides, special surgical instruments that have been specially made, and I've been involved with some of their designs, so that the consistency and accuracy of these tunnels can be perfect. The other big feature besides tunnel location is making sure that the morbidity to the muscle is minimized. What that means is you have to get access to the ligament in order to reconstruct it. And getting access means you have to move the muscle a little bit. And we stated already, the flexor muscle protects the ligament. It'll protect the reconstruction. And so if the approach and the dissection is minimized and it's not causing excessive damage or damage to the muscle, then that's going to be a huge benefit for that particular athlete, especially during the recovery process. And then once he gets back to throwing at 100%. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I know is somewhat of a debated point with respect to UCL reconstruction. And I can remember the first time I, I sat in on a Tommy John always being just shocked at, you know, after the initial incision, there's just a lot of stuff in the way. You know, it's not just like the the neat and pretty anatomy chart that you, you know, you see in, in every book you've had as you studied growing up. But, um, and I know one of the, the pieces of that puzzle, the stuff that's in the way is the ulnar nerve. And there, there are some physicians who prefer to do an ulnar nerve transposition because you kind of have to do an ulnar nerve release to get access you know, to the, to the deepest segments of a, you know, ligament that connects bone to bone. Um, and I know other physicians only do it sometimes. Some don't do it at all. What for you are the, the clinical indications to do an ulnar nerve transposition, um, if at all? Well, that's a great, that's a great point. And in fact, speaking with Dr. Job, I had a lot of time with him and not everybody knows this, but Tommy John himself had a problem with his ulnar nerve after the ligament reconstruction. And because his nerve was not working well, it delayed his rehab and it delayed the time that he started throwing and how forceful he started throwing in the progressive throwing program. And at the time, it it sounded like it was a real complication that had to be managed. But in retrospect, even Tommy John says it himself, the forced slow rehab because of his nerve that needed to recover probably paved the way for a better rehab process. Whereas he just, if he went really quickly and re-injured the ligament, then they probably would not have redone the surgery for a long period of time. So 
Back to the ulnar nerve and, and current 2019 strategy. The answer is some surgeons, because of their approach to the elbow, they have to move the nerve in order to do it. There is some literature that is very suggestive that if you have to move the nerve and you handle the nerve, a certain percentage of the time you'll have some minor nerve complications, paresthesias, which is numbness and tingling in the fingers, things like that. So for many surgeons, including myself, we reserve ulnar nerve manipulation or an ulnar nerve transposition where it gets moved to the front part of the elbow from the back. And the setting of their nerve is already unstable and moving around. I just saw a patient last week where they had a, a snapping sensation in their elbow when they threw and had tingling in their fingers. And that's because their ulnar nerve was jumping over the medial bone, uh, the medial epicondyle. And that has to be stabilized. So that's a clear indication. The second one is if the nerve is already experiencing uh, an injury pattern, which could be inflammation, ulnar neuritis, which is the nerves inflamed, or more concerning neuropathy, where the nerve is undergoing chronic changes, where you get weakness in your fingers and your hand, and more of a dense numbness, even when you're not throwing in your pinky and ring finger, then that nerve needs to be uh, released and transposed. So it's not routine for me, but it's definitely about 20% of the time the nerve needs to be managed. And is that consistent? I, I think I remember reading some research where population averages that, you know, there's a certain chunk of the population I've heard anywhere from 10 to 30% actually does have a nerve. I know I, I personally have it on both elbows, so I'm sure there's a, a congenital component to some degree. So it's, it's somewhat consistent with the population averages you would expect. Yeah, the ulnar nerve instability happens in a in a certain population where the nerve has to be managed. Mm -hmm. And then there's variations in elbow anatomy. And another great feature that people have to address and that we have to realize is not everybody has a tendon in their wrist called the palmaris longus, which is the traditional graft choice for a Tommy John surgery. And if you don't have it, which 20% of the population uh, does not, then the alternative graft choice that's popular is taking it from the knee, and that's a gracilis tendon. And there's lots of fun debates among surgeons whether you should do it from the drive leg or the land leg. The drive leg, maybe if you take a, a harvest from that knee, will decrease their power. Uh, at the same time, you could argue the land leg is under a lot of stress during the landing, and that's where the transfer of the energy happens. So it's, it's a fun argument, but the knee gracilis tendon is always consistent and strong. 20% of the population doesn't have a palmaris at the wrist, and some, they have a palmaris, but it's small. So what I generally do is, before a Tommy John surgery, we have them activate their forearm muscle, and you can see the tendon, and you can get a good sense what the size is, and if the size of their tendon is smaller than the tendon I can show them, then we go straight to the knee and use the gracilis tendon. That's great feedback. It makes for a little bit more of a challenging post-op training period if they have to use gracilis, but they, they do do very well longer term. So um, that's in, do, you, do you generally prefer palmaris longus whenever possible in your surgeries? The palmaris longus is definitely a great choice. It's very convenient. Athletes will always ask, well, what's the uh, consequence of taking it? And the answer is there's no real consequence. We have so many athletes that are throwing at the highest level with the palmaris. And from a, a technical consideration, the palmaris, we expose it at the wrist 
And if it looks like it's a very large size, then we'll try and harvest it and we'll put it in position. And we feel good because we have good diameter graft, which means a strong graft. If it looks a little thin and we're still going to use it, then I'll get as much length on the, on the palmaris longus and we'll weave it around the elbow at least three and often four times. So they get four strands. And many of the professional athletes, they know that there's a feature of getting more or less strands across the elbow. So it's pretty common when I walk into the recovery room and go to tell them how many uh, or tell them how the surgery went. The first question they have is not how did it go, but how many strands did you get? <laughs> there you go. That's, that's pretty, intelli- pretty intelligent of them knowing how much anesthesia they've probably recently been on. Usually they'll say some, <laughs> some enter- yeah. entertaining things too. Um, yeah. So I'm actually very curious. Um, so we obviously manage athletes in many cases after a, a UCL repair um, over an extended period of time. And the, the, the tip I always give to those athletes is imagine you're a major league baseball pitcher. You're going to make between 30 to 35 starts if you have a 100% healthy year. And even if you are the best pitcher on the planet, there are going to be a couple of clunkers in there where you're just not going to feel it. You're not going to have your best velo. You're going to be sore. And so I always tell them, expect there to be those days, you know, during a return to throwing program where if some days it's barking at you, it might be the kind of thing where you, you take a day and you push it back. Um, I'm curious as to what are, what are the big, um, you know, points that you really try to drill home to your patients in those, you know, initial days after a surgery so that they, they don't run into the, you know, the common mistakes that you'll see people. Um, what, what are the, the, the key points that you want every patient to know as they start their, their road to recovery? Well, that's a great question because the rehab process is probably even more important than the actual surgery itself. So any things that are less than ideal in the rehab can influence the outcome. The first point of emphasis is the first half of the rehab process or the first one third of the rehab process is preparation for throwing, getting your elbow healthy, removing all the swelling, getting the forearm muscles strong and Restoring the motion is priority number one. Priority number two is getting the whole kinetic chain ready for the throwing process. And that includes your leg, your core, your shoulder, and your trunk strong and flexible. And then when it comes time to throw, before we actually start a throwing program, which usually is around four to four and a half months, used to be shorter than that, but we've been extending the time a little bit. And it used to be time-based. We like to have the athlete go through a functional assessment, and that is let's have them do all of the required movements that are indicating that they're going to be ready to throw. And often that's throwing against a trampoline with a weighted ball, not for velocity enhancement, but to coordinate their muscle activity and doing a lot of wall uh, dribbling drills, some other exercises that show that they have endurance in the, in the system. Because some of these young kids especially, they haven't fully matured into their lengthy skeleton with their neuromuscular control. And those are the ones that I tend to worry about, especially if they have an extreme interest in increasing velocity quickly and get into the uh, velocity enhancement program. No doubt about it. And, you know, it's interesting. You were, you were actually a, a co-author on, a, on an excellent um, kind of meta-analysis in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine. It was, it was called Rehabilitation Variability After Elbow Owner Collateral Ligament Reconstruction. And 
it was a very intriguing article because, you know, the, the gist of the article, I think it was they looked at uh, 22 different protocols. And the, the take home was that there was notable variability in both the composition and timing of rehabilitation components across a small number of protocols available online. So um, I, I'm curious, you know, it, it sounds like a lot of different physicians have different approaches to what to do in the period after a surgery. For you, what are your what are your key benchmarks? You know, when do you want to see full flexion, full extension? When you mentioned obviously four to four and a half months from a throwing standpoint, but what are the other things that are are really important boxes that athletes need to check along that way back? Well, uh, you're right. First, if there's any uh, features that led up to the injury, I'll give you an example. I had a uh, an athlete who had a terrible patellar tendonitis on their land leg. And because the patellar tendonitis on land leg, it changed their stride length dynamics and they tried to compensate at their elbow and their upper body and they ended up tearing their ligament. And so at the time of the surgery, we operated on their knee first and took out the patellar tendonitis component and forced that to heal. And then we did the Tommy John surgery. And that's an example of anywhere in the kinetic chain that we see something that may have led to the problem, we want to fix that. It's not always obvious, but if it is, it uh, 100% needs to be addressed. We love the analogy that if you have a malaligned car and it's causing your tires to wear out, you don't want to simply change the tires because they're going to wear out again. We want to get that alignment right. So the... Uh, that requires a global assessment. And oftentimes in an exam room, you're the, uh, in a, in my regular office setting where I'm doing a physical exam and reviewing MRIs. That's not the right setting. So we try to get the athlete in more of a physical therapy or gym setting. And that's where, uh, my team, athletic trainer, physical therapist will do an assessment and they'll tell me there, there's a, there's a glute that's not activating well. We got that to work on or we got some hip inflexibility issues like that. So that's, that's number one. Two, as far as when you're recovered, athletes are always uh, concentrating on extreme strength. And as you know, Eric, better than anybody, oftentimes the baseball player strength and flexibility is much different than other athletes Absolutely. that are power athletes. So basically, we don't want young uh, high school baseball players working out like football players. We want them to keep their flexibility and keep their strength. So a lot of that is getting them coordinated with the right rehab specialist and strength and conditioning specialist. Once they have somebody who's uh, an expert working with them, my stress level goes way down that they're going to be healthy when it comes time to throw. And part of the reason to do the research project on the variability of rehab is because unfortunately, poor rehab results in poor preparation and poor uh, even healing of the ligaments. So when they start to throw, they get into trouble. And we'd like them to have full motion, full strength, and sometimes full motion for that athlete is what they had pre-op because not every thrower has full motion uh, prior to surgery. We want to make sure they've reestablished their preoperative range of motion in their elbow, all the flexibility throughout their system, full strength, and then throwing goes easy without effort. That's great feedback. And and you know what I think is a really important 
I mean, there are obviously certain myths of Tommy John where people think that, you know, having Tommy John will make them throw harder when in reality that the native ligament is always ideal. Um, but I think another, you know, kind of maybe myth or, or perception that's faulty is, you know, seeing young kids who have these surgeries who try to compare themselves to professional baseball players in terms of the timeline, right? You hear about a, you know, a Lance Lynn pitching in games at nine and a half months or Steven Strasburg back in the day dominating at 11 months back in the big leagues. Um, what, what are the timelines with respect to return to full function that you typically counsel your young athletes about? And, and also maybe from a physiological standpoint, when do you expect that ligament to be a ligament, right? We asked a tendon to become a ligament. We know we have the ACL research that talks about that, that taking a considerable amount of time to get to that point. You know, that's an area that I want to investigate even further because I think we're just starting to learn more about it. When does the transplanted tissue actually behave like a normal ligament? It's not at 12 months. It's still maturing well beyond that. So we do like to limit the amount of hard throwing and volume of throwing the first year back. So we expect uh, from a timeline uh, perspective, we start throwing generally around four, four and a half months of throwing program. A mound program starts at about eight months. And then you start to see hitters and you can get into competitive situations by 12 months. But the ligament's still maturing and it's still getting stronger. So we like to make sure that the first year back, the innings and the amount of volume don't exceed something that the elbow hasn't seen before. In fact, we've researched that and found that to be a risk factor for uh, having a reconstruction that gets re-injured, and that is too rapid a jump in your volume after throwing. And sometimes the uh, where you are in your uh, career uh, you have aspirations of getting drafted and you have to throw a certain amount or uh, other reasons in your career at the professional level that you may throw more than what you would optimally design. And that's accepting risk factors. And uh, that's where we have to develop some uh, guardrails for our athletes to keep them healthy. That's a great point. And I, I'm actually curious, we've talked a lot about the the post-operative timeline and the approaches to surgery, but you also are one of the physicians who's been at the forefront of utilizing biological interventions like PRP to, to conservatively manage elbow issues. Can you share a little bit about, uh, you know, the success you've had with, on this front, um, who is and isn't a good candidate and where you see these, these interventions, um, you know, really headed in the future? Eric, you're so right. The the ligament we spoke about it, it's fragile, it's thin, and it's small. It's only a few millimeters thick, and it's only about two inches in length. And at the same time, where it's mechanically not robust, it also is, it's not biologically active like other tissues. It just doesn't have great blood supply. And in fact, some areas of the ligament have weaker blood supply than other areas of the ligament. So there's what we call regional differences in the ligament. And knowing that the ligament doesn't want to heal because it doesn't have great blood supply, using biologic treatments can make some of those areas where they're teetering on the ability to heal. We can push them into healing and healing magnificently using uh, new technologies. So platelet-rich plasma, PRP, many people are familiar with now because it's a strategy that is natural. You take a blood sample from a player 
and you put it in a machine, the machine separates the healing agents from the other aspects of the blood that aren't involved in healing. And the aspects of healing are the platelets with the rich plasma. The concentrated form then gets injected into the area of injury. I do it using an ultrasound, so I know it goes right into the area of interest where the injury has occurred. And that can stimulate a stubborn ligament that would not heal on its own to heal more reliably and to heal faster. So a typical scenario would be somebody has a very small partial tear. It's at an area of the what we call the distal part of the ligament, which is closer to the hand uh, as opposed to the shoulder part of the elbow. And then we indicate them for enhanced healing with PRP. They undergo two or three injections, each injection separated by a week, and then they go through a very formal rehab program with strengthening and some of the features we talked about that might happen after surgery. And the results have been encouraging. For some of the tears that are higher severity, higher degree, they're just not great candidates for the PRP. Where does your um, where's your thought process with respect to stem cells? And there was actually a, a great article that came out. It was called uh, "The Role of Biologic Agents in the Management of Common Shoulder Pathologies: Current State and Future Directions." It was Carr and Romeo, um, actually from HSS in New York, in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. And it came out this past summer, and one of the underlying, I think, themes of it was be careful with stem cells because it's it's, 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 you know, it's marketed on billboards. It's, it's a very unregulated world. Um, and, and certainly what's out there, you know, in a really, really, you know, high level institution may be markedly different than what you're getting off the, the back of a black van, I guess. So where do you stand with respect to some of the stem cell interventions, whether it's bone marrow derived or adipose tissue? Do you, do you see uh, a lot of promise there? Have you utilized them? Do you see a, a future, um, you know, in that regard? 100% stem cells is our, uh, our frontier. We're going to learn so much about how to use stem cells and what situation and what type of stem cells are superior for what type of condition. At our institution alone, we have 70, 70 PhDs who are involved in stem cell research. Wow. And we also have tissue engineers who are learning how to recreate tissues in a way that uh, in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to have this conversation and we're going to be talking all about biologic treatment. Having said that right now, because stem cells are so complicated, we have to make sure that if we want a ligament to be enhanced with healing, the stem cell, by definition, it may more aggressively create a healing response. And if it's too aggressive, it creates fibrosis, extra scar tissue, calcifications, and it may um, be detrimental. So modulating the stem cell activity is one of the biggest challenges. Mm -hmm. So it may seem like just throwing some stem cells uh, will always be advantageous. The stem cells are uh, a tool, and it's a powerful tool. And uh, like Spider-Man, with, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and unfortunately, because uh, stem cells, we don't know that uh, as much as we need to right now, there can be an element of abuse, meaning it can be advertised in a way that may not be uh, sincere or it may not have evidence base behind it. But 
we all have to respect what stem cells will offer us. And my personal perspective is we need to study it and then we need to use it effectively. And first and foremost, we have to avoid injuring any athlete while we're trying a new technology or a new biologic treatment. That's great feedback. And back to the PRP side of things. I know um, we've seen athletes over the years that have used it maybe two non-traditional scenarios. I've, I've heard of scenarios where PRP was injected into the joint space for its you know, anti-inflammatory properties at a, at a shoulder, or it was injected concurrently with cortisone to try to counteract some of the potential harmful uh, effects of, of cortisone on the, the tendons in question. Do you see roles in that regard for PRP beyond just regenerative benefits, but also maybe as an alternative to cortisone or as an augmenting agent with cortisone? That's a great point. PRP also has tremendous uh, ability to manage pain and inflammation, uh, especially in the setting of premature arthritis, as an example. So many of our athletes who have had uh, a lot of innings under their belt or our position players who have played a lot of games, they can get aching pain that can compromise their performance. And, and basically, they just hurt as well. A typical scenario would be, uh, let's just say, some early knee arthritis. PRP in combination with other uh, elements such as viscosupplementation can be extremely beneficial, especially during a long season, uh, including a preseason and a postseason. So it's pretty routine for us to use combination injection treatments such as uh, viscosupplementation with PRP throughout a season to keep a achy knee or an achy joint feeling better. The other most common area that PRP is used in the in the professional athlete is with a, a significant muscle strain. So somebody is running out a, a ground ball to first and they pop their hamstring and they have a high-grade muscle strain. PRP can reduce the amount of time for healing and can also decrease the amount of fibrosis or scar tissue. And it's thought that the fibrosis, if it uh, occurs, leads to a higher chance of recurrence meaning you get hamstring strains uh, more uh, with more risk in the future. So PRP is great for those situations. That's outstanding. Um, and, and we're going to kind of move a little bit in a different direction. So you've been very active in the research world, and, and, and you've done it across a lot of disciplines, right, ranging from surgical approaches to rehabilitation outcomes to, to early sports specialization. I'm curious as to where you think, we need more information. I mean, obviously we need to, we need to take what we know and, and get kids to stop just playing baseball 12 months out of the year at age 12. But where do you think, um, you know, we need to not just take the information we have and, and, and put it out there, but actually go out and acquire a lot more info, whether it's respect to post-op timelines or interventions for various injuries or biological interventions. What, what, what keeps you off uh, up at night staring into blackness as you think about these things? Well, that, it, uh, it's funny you say it like that because uh, my, my mind wanders uh, about helping athletes of all levels and trying to scale the impact so that we can do better uh, as a, you know, as, as a community of health providers. And what excites me the most right now, we have a new, what's referred to as the pitch registry. Two years ago, I proposed to Major League Baseball the concept of a registry. And the registry is a way to have any athlete who injures their elbow be put into a database across the country, different institutions, different physicians. And once we have 
sample size, if we have all of these athletes, whether they're amateur, collegiate, professional, into a database, then we can start to look at the variables that are very hard to study individually. Uh, examples being if we have delay in our throwing programs, is that beneficial, especially in a young athlete? Is there a difference between a hamstring tendon and a palmaris longus graft? Is there truly a difference between three strands and four strands? All of these subtle questions, when we have a huge sample size, will be answered. And so the registry started this past May with uh, inputting patients. So I started putting in patients. Uh, since May, we have 50 patients that have been put in. And now we're in the process of onboarding other institutions now that we know that the registry is working well. And I suspect within two or three years, we're going to have ability to answer questions without having to design a study, but basically look into our database, query the questions, do our statistics on it, and that's going to help us change how we take care of patients, whether it's a a uh, non-operative treatment, a surgical treatment, or from a rehab perspective. That's outstanding. I, I didn't realize that was taking place. I'm excited about that too. Um, so we always end our interviews with a lightning round. Um, so this is where we throw a, a collection of uh, quick hitter questions at you, and you can you can respond as lengthy as you want. Um, the first one I'm going to throw at you is recommendations to up and coming sports medicine professionals. There's a, there's probably a a 21 year old college student who wants to be the the next Dr. Chris Ahmad. What would your suggestion be to that individual? Well, I love that question. And I examine myself so much that uh, I'm going to put a plug in for a book that I wrote. It's on Amazon available. And the book is called skill and The reason why I wrote this book, Skill, is because being around all these amazing athletes, New York Yankees, I could observe what they did in preparation for games and talking to them what they did to develop their talents. And when I learned what they were doing, it's not that much different than what a surgeon or somebody else who's committed to whatever their talent domain or their career is. The principles are universal. And so I put it all in a book and it's kind of like a manual with 50 tips on how to create an environment where you can achieve mastery. And it goes uh, through some process of how you actually practice, how you give yourself self-feedback, how you choose mentors, who you decide to reverse engineer because they did it well and you want to figure out how they did it. So it's it's a fun, easy read. It takes a, a few hours and every time somebody reads it, uh, they usually gift it to somebody else because they feel like it's a, it's a nice message for people who want to take their career or their education to the next level. I like it. We will get that in the show notes. And I'm also going to throw in a, another plug for your, your newer baseball sports medicine, your, your dream team of baseball sports medicine professionals. That was an outstanding book. You have uh, Dr. Thompson on Thoracic Outlet, Dr. Romeo on Lats. You did a lot with elbows. Dr. Graham was great with the wrist and hand stuff. So um, tons of rehabilitation and strength conditioning stuff too. So that's an excellent read. Um, next question. Uh, there are undoubtedly some some parents listening to this uh, with their kids on the way home from a baseball game or their way to a baseball game. Um, what's your, what's your suggestion to the parents and coaches out there who have a, a 13 or a 14 year old that want to, to enjoy baseball, stay healthy playing baseball and, and have a sustainable career? 
Well, there's something about uh, the youth that we all feel committed to helping and preserving their dreams. And so I often feel like part of my job for a long time has been watching these kids who are pushing their bodies to their physical limits. It was as if we were watching them performing on the edge of a cliff and I was at the bottom. And when they fell off, I would put them back together and put them back on the cliff. And now what I think our goal is, what our obligation is, is we need to develop guide rails so they don't fall off the cliff. And for uh, the parents and our young kids, they should enjoy the game and they should push their bodies as much as they can. But the number one message is, while the sport of throwing a baseball is driven by this metric of velocity, learning how to pitch, being creative, getting players and hitters out is what they should be working on. And if a parent can develop a relationship with their child who's playing, that if they start to feel discomfort in the inside part of their elbow, they should feel okay to talk about it, either with a coach or with their parent. And they should be shut down at least for a period of time to see it resolved, if not uh, seeing a doctor so a diagnosis is not missed. And we've done pretty well with concussion. It used to be that if you got hit in the head and you had your bell rung and you're in a football game, it was cool to stay in the game and you were tough if you could stay in the game. We've completely changed the culture and now it is no longer the that way. If somebody gets hurt in the head, in fact, we want to help our teammate out by getting them off the field. And we like to establish culture within our young athletes and not have to reverse it as they get older. So having that open line of communication is great. And I have yet one more resource for that. I have a children's book and the title is called Understanding and Avoiding Tommy John Surgery. And the idea behind it is let's have parents who are bringing their kids to Little League games read the book with their kids so they can start that open dialogue and that comfort with each other that if something's not going well, they can manage it. That's great feedback. All right, last one, recommendations to your younger self. If you could speak to a 16-year-old version of yourself, what, what tips would you give? Wow, that is a tough one that I'd have mm-hmm. to think about, uh, I think, just a little bit. <laughs> and uh, It always stumps the Major League Baseball players, too, so you're, you're in good company. <laughs> yeah, if, if I... If I could speak to myself as a, uh, as a younger athlete and, um, it would probably be along the lines of learning how to be effective with mistakes that you make because the mistakes that we make in life are inevitable and there's going to be more for all of us in the future. But going back, I think sometimes I beat myself up for mistakes rather than using them as ideal learning opportunities and rather than allowing the mistake to help me build and get closer to what I wanted to achieve, I think it got in the way in certain situations. So making sure that the obstacle that's in your way uh, can somehow become the way that you build and grow and work your way over the obstacle to achieve your dream. 
Find success in the struggle, right? That's right. There you go. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, folks can find you on both Twitter and Instagram. You have actually outstanding stuff on both, uh, particularly respect to new research that's come out. Um, it's at Dr. Chris Ahmad, and then it's DrAhmadSportsMedicine.com. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, thanks so much for carving out some, uh, some space in your schedule to, to share some wisdom with us. It was really terrific to be here. I'm a huge fan, Eric, and uh, and I look forward to talking and working with you some more in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.